Father, thank you for this day. We're so grateful to gather. Thank you for each and every one that's here. What a blessing to gather midweek and sing these beautiful songs that remind us of our hope is just to cling to Christ. And there we find his truth, his comfort, his discipline, his love. And then, Lord, we turn to the word and we look into its sufficiency for a greater understanding of our high priest, Jesus Christ. A greater understanding how to live this life and to be reminded again the position that we hold in Christ. So, Lord, thank you for this time. Be with those who wanted to be here tonight but couldn't for various reasons. Pray for many that are watching online that you would strengthen them as well, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus 21 is our text. As I studied this, I couldn't help but think over and over, and I wrote in my notes, those in the presence of the Lord must be blameless. That's, that, that, is, that is the resounding theme of Leviticus. Those who come into the presence of God must be blameless. And certainly that is true of us today in the New Testament world as well. Jesus set the tone, Matthew chapter 5, 48, early in his ministry. He said this, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Probably the Pharisees right there said, Well, I guess we're in. Um, but they weren't. He was speaking of a perfect position that they would have through his finished work. God's plan of salvation in Ephesians 1 verse 4 said, Just as he has chose us in him, that's Jesus, before the foundations of the world, that's election, that we would be holy and blameless in him. It is the only way to be in the presence of God is you have to be holy and blameless. And you can try to do it yourself. You will fail miserably. Or you can stand in the position dressed in the righteousness of Christ. We know that comes, a position comes through Christ. Colossians 1.22 says, Yet he has, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body. So Christ came incarnate. And through his death, the Bible says, in order to present you. I love that personal pronoun there. Just The Bible is just speaking to you. To present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond approach. <laughs> no one can say, that guy doesn't deserve to be there. If it's Christ that's brought us there. Well, this leads us to a New Testament truth that we love to teach on, is the priesthood of the believer. There is a priesthood of the believer. Today, you and I are part of that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, now listen to this, a royal priesthood. Not, not just part of the royal priest, not just part of the priesthood, but in the royal lineage of Christ, we are in his son. And so now we are part of this royal family as well. And that makes us this holy nation, this holy ethnos of people, a people for God's own possession. And so in the Old Testament, the priests were there to proclaim that there can be reconciliation through this marvelous God, this Yahweh who has made a temporary, but made a way to have a right, blameless stance with him. But the New Testament believer priest, we proclaim the glory of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, the one who took the spiritually, I know this is harsh, but you're going to hear this in this text, the spiritually deformed <laughs> and made us presentable so that we can stand in his presence holy and blameless for all of eternity. Well, that's where this text is pointing. As, as historical as this text is and the instruction for the high priest, this text helps us understand that this is who we are. We are the priesthood of God. I want to look at three thoughts tonight and we'll understand this text in its context and then we'll apply it to our lives. Number one, the holy conduct of those who serve God and his people. Look with me at the first four verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicated to me. Oh, excuse me. I'm in that's verse 22. I knew that wasn't right. Chapter 21. I'm going, well, I don't remember studying that verse. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, see, it starts the same, uh, speak to the, the priests, here we go, we're on the right one now, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and father and his sons and his daughters and his brothers, also for his virgin sister who is near to him because she has no husband, for her he may defile himself, and he shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people, and so profane himself. Well, here we come to a text where God is teaching that he did not want his priests to be like other men. He wants them to be different. He wants them to understand that they hold a very special place within the community of nation of Israel. And thus, his relationship with them should set them apart. They should not be like the rest of of the men, because they represent him. You'll notice in those first four verses that God did not want them involved in, in every death that took place in the nation of Israel. And what comes with death, right? There was mourning and there was um, a, a week-long time of mourning and eating and taking care of the family and all that. He did not want them involved with that process. See, God wanted his priests to be somewhat of public figures, there were to be testimonies and witnesses. But they were to be there to sustain the ministry of sacrifice. That, that's what God wanted them to do. And they were to do that on behalf of the people so they could approach God. Now, now you think about this. There's several million people. And you can imagine how many deaths are taking place in this nomadic life. And they're compressed in this uh, tent society. Separated into their tribes, there was doubtlessly plenty of death, but God's instruction was that the priests were to stay away from that. That was not part of their ministry. They were to focus on the ministry of reconciliation between God and man, the sacrifice that were offered, and to bring those sacrifices before a holy God. But this didn't mean that the priests were devoid of emotions, right, or sympathy or, or feelings, right? And I think these opening verses you notice here, they allow the priest to pour out his grief over his closest family members. Doubtlessly, priest family members were dying, and so God's word allows for them to deal with that. But remember, all of this is, is a type, right? The, the priests are a type, and they point towards Christ as one that intercedes for us. And yet the ministry was not emotionalist. It was not emotionless. They had emotions. And, and one of the things we studied in the life of Christ, he had great emotions. We see him be angry, but without sin at times. But we also see great emotion come from Christ. The death of Lazarus, whom he knew he was going to raise, <laughs> the Lord weeps. And certainly he wept over the unbelief that was there, but yet Lazarus was precious to him. He was like family to him. And doubtlessly the priests were overwhelmed with emotions when they heard of death of people that they knew, people within the community of Israel. And yet God was instructing them to focus on the ministry. Let others handle the mourning and the burials and all of those things. You need to realize what I have done with you. You're there to intercede. You're there to bring sacrifices on behalf of others to me. Now, in comparison, we start thinking about the ministers of the gospel today, right? What kind of mindset are we supposed to have as pastors and elders and so forth? At times, as I thought about this, studying this passage, I thought there's times as pastor elders, we, are, we experience everything from tenderness to frustration to compassion and you may go through a week like that, and yet there's a job to be done. God's word has to be handled. The scriptures need to be studied, applied, and taught, even when your heart is breaking, because God sent pastors to handle the word of God. And that's what these priests were to do. See, God wants men, leaders in the church. He wanted leaders in Israel who were arrested by the love of God captured by this 
beautiful, perfect love of God and a love for the flock. Those things go hand in hand. And yet, the leaders often experience great times of sorrow. They have to deal with their own sin at times. They have to be led to confession and repentance and then be able to come back and lead others to do the same. This is the mark of God's men that he calls to represent him. See, the purpose of these laws was to illustrate purity. When you study this, there's a lot about purity. It's a lot about perfection. It's about being separated from sin. This is what was to characterize the priest, the man of God, who was to bring sacrifices into the presence of God. In the pagan world that was around them, the priest of these dead gods, they, they actually were the ones who did handle all the dead bodies because there was a reason for that. They didn't know if their dead gods would accept the dead souls of the people. And so they were the ones that handled the dead bodies. God didn't want his priest, his Men of God called this Levitical tribe to be handling dead bodies. He wanted them to bringing people to the life of truth. The truth of who God was and how to come to him. Notice verse 5 and 6. And they shall not make any baldness on their head, nor shave off their edges of their beard, nor make any cuts in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God. So they shall be holy. But when they did mourn over the loss of a loved one, these priests were not to imitate the pagan culture. It would be so easy to act like them. There were such influences around them, just like today. But these priests were instructed to abstain from any appearance of evil. And that came in certain ways, right? They, they, were not to, they were not to shave their heads or their beards or cut themselves. The word baldness here is uh, a word not particularly used here, not of natural hair loss. Uh, some, some have that challenge. Um, but here it's more the intentional shaving off of hair. And see, this was a ritual done by the pagan priests of these nations, particularly Canaanites that were around them. This was a way they mourned for the dead, longing for the gods, these dead gods, to accept the souls of these dead people. God wanted nothing, nothing to do with this with his people. They shaved their beards and they inflicted themselves with wounds. And the reason they did this is that hoping their gods would have pity on them that they're suffering so they would listen to their, their cries and their pleas. You go, Scott, well, how do you know this? Well, historical stuff teaches us this, but we have verses that help us. You remember Mount Carmel and Elijah goes up? One of the, one of the fun, funnest stories, right, when you read this. I mean, uh, Elijah is mocking them. And it's okay. Gets on the mountain and there is these prophets of Baal. <laughs> these are pagan, pagan men. Possibly had sacrificed their own sons and daughters to this dead God. Imagine these people, they're cut and their wounds heal and they cut themselves again and so forth. These people are a mess. And here they are on this Mount Carmel and comes about noon the bible says in first kings chapter 18 verse 27 and following that elijah began to mock them and said call out with a loud voice for he is a god isn't he either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened you know what's funny is he actually believed him verse 28 says so they cried out louder <laughs> well you might be right Let's just yell louder. But the verse gets worse here because you listen to this. And it says they cut themselves. Now notice this. According to their custom. See, this is, this is the way the pagan world operated. 
God did not want his men who had authority, spiritual authority over his people to be poor examples, to act like the world in any way. Notice in verse 6 as well that the priests were to be holy to their God and not to profane his name by any, any godless behavior, really, right? So instead of baldness and blood, the priests of God were to offer up food to their God. To present the offering by the fire of the Lord. And this was the sacrifices given on the burnt altar. The daily bread and the, the showbread on the table, right? In the tabernacle. That all pictured the sweet fellowship that the nation had with Yahweh. This is what they were to do. And only the priests were allowed to do this. And so they needed to be godly men, holy men, holy like their God they served. I think it's true of us today as those of us who are ministers of the gospel. We must not offer up services out of spite or vengefulness or angry passions or anything. Nothing we do as elders and pastors and leaders and teachers should ever resemble the things of the world. I think that's what the text is after. The Bible says that we are to be sober-minded Good behavior, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, consistently above reproach. This is the calling of God's servants. And though they may be grieving over difficulties, right? There's times we go through this as pastors. Or there's a loss of life in our own homes or our own families. We're to maintain and be set apart for the ministry, sharing the bread of life. Sharing the sacrifice of Christ. That's the gospel with those who come to hear this truth. And so it was with the priest here in Leviticus 21. They were to set themselves aside. They were not to deal with these daily things. They were to be concentrated on the care of the sacrificial system and bringing men to God. Look at verses 7 through 9. They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor... Shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God? You shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctifies you, am holy. Also the daughters of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, and she shall be burned with fire. Well, the terms in verse 7 give us an understanding that the priests were to take virgin wines. It isn't hard to understand that there. And they were certainly to have wives that were not involved in immorality. You can see that in the text. And that was the mark of the pagan priest around them. The occultic prostitution of the Canaanites was soaked in that. It was how they thought their gods were pleased by the immorality that would go on in their temples. This was never to be any place in the life of the community of God's people. Again, notice in these verses that they set the priest as a model. They're, they're to be a model to the rest of the nation. Their marriages and their child rearing. And more importantly, they were to offer the food of God through the sacrificial system. So they were to pursue holiness in all avenues, at home, in the tabernacle. As they went back and forth, they were to be set apart as holy for God. I think maybe we can imagine offering a sacrifice to a holy God through a priest who profanes the name. And you say, well, how is that possible? These guys are there. They're going into the temple. They're, they're offering daily these sacrifices on behalf of others to God. They, they themselves are cleansed and dressed and, and undressed and put in front of God and all these things that go on. But yet that's exactly what happened to the nation. There's so many verses that speak about the profaning of the priest. Uh, I, I read so many of them, but I finally landed on Ezekiel 22, 26 as the judgment is falling down on the nation of Israel, as they're led off the captive, God says, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They offered their sons and daughters to Baal. The Bible goes on to say they have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. 
And God help us if we're of a church that doesn't make a distinction between holiness and profane. And yet that line is getting really muddy, isn't it, in the world? Homosexuality is just is exalted, isn't it? And if you stand against it, you're the one who's profaning, isn't it? Look how, that, look how that's blended, and yet churches after churches are accepting this right now. God, when he's speaking through Ezekiel, he is not happy. He said, they have not taught the difference between unclean and the clean. That verse scares me. Can you imagine the priest of the Old Testament when they stand in final judgment before Almighty God? I gave you clear, explicit instructions of how you were to handle my tabernacle and your life. And you profaned it. It also makes me (laughs) quite nervous at times, doesn't it? It's not a nervousness of like, boy, i got to keep in line. But you really feel the weight of the responsibility when God calls you into the ministry. Whether that's eldership or the diaconate. That's why we take things like our new two new deacons so, so, uh, so serious. These men are accepting a calling that God has placed on their life. And, and we realize the weightiness of that. And what happens is churches are led by the pulpit, aren't they? They're led by the leaders. And I think it begs begs a question when God's people don't desire to be holy, do they have the right to call themselves God's people? And that has to be applied somewhere to today's church. Again, that's not legalism. It's just going, are we going to do things God's way or are we going to integrate a worldly philosophy? Remember, when you get to Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the judgment passage of the nation of Israel... They were literally going to temple in the morning and offering their children in the afternoon to Baal. That's how deceived they were. Well, notice in verse 9 that we see that the holiness is expected by the priests also extends to their household and to their immediate family. Notice his daughters were singled out in this verse, which is interesting. And they were to have a special responsibility to purity. And you go, well, why the daughters? Because it's the daughters of the pagans that are around them that were often offered into prostitution and sacrifices and all kinds of things. Women were tremendously abused in immorality in religious, for religious purposes. And so God said, have nothing to do with that. You protect my daughters, is what God is saying. The New Testament instructs the pastor elder to lead a life of godliness as well, right? And to lead those who are under his roof. They're to be, they're to be under control and they're to live with dignity. They're to be faithful children, the Bible teaches us. And, and leaders have to set that example. And it's tremendously tough to raise children in the ministry. I often tell young guys going into ministry, get ready, you're going to be swimming in a fishbowl. And everybody's going to watch everything you do and everything your children do. And you're going to feel the judgment of lots of people. But you've got to live for Jesus, not for them. And so it is trying at times. And yet God wants his leadership to be those who exemplify the home and the marriage, doesn't he? And God's always desired that men who spiritually lead his people, Old Testament, New Testament, be examples to God's people. Look, where the shepherd leads, the flock follows. That's why God puts such, you know this verse, James, he puts such a stricter judgment on those who teach and lead. If God's moving in your heart for leadership, and I pray he is in some of you men, you must know that. There is a stricter judgment. There is a standard that has to be kept. Now let me hear, hear this out very clearly has to be kept because you love Christ. If you try to just keep some standard, I promise you, you'll raise a bunch of legalistic little Pharisees. Second thought tonight, the, great, the greater high priest who will never fail his people. 
There's a greater high priest who will never fail his people. Read with me verses 10 through 15. The priest who is in the highest among his brothers, the priest who is the highest among his brothers, who want, who, uh, on whose head the anointed oil has been poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person nor defile himself, even his father or his mother." Nor shall he go out of the sanctuary or profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oils of his, of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity. A widow or a divorced woman or, uh, or one who is profaned by harlotry, he may not take. But rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people. So that he will not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Well, this is the first mention of the high priest in the Old Testament. This is the first text uh, that we begin to see that there is a priest in a higher ranking among the priesthood. This is the passage that introduces us to this. The word highest there, the Hebrew word, um, is actually very translatable. You could say the greatest. The greatest of the priest is to have this role. And so it's, it's given to show the importance of this role, this one that God was given would have. And Exodus 28 points out, though it doesn't use this term, but points out that there is one in this priesthood who would um, have special anointing and have uh, special garments that he wore. But here is where we find the term the high priest. All the other laws of the priesthood would apply to him. But there are some that are added to his role. And that will be discussed further as the law goes throughout the Pentateuch. But the common priests were, were commanded not to defile themselves with the dead except for the closest relative. But notice the high priest here was prohibited from mourning or coming in contact with any dead body, even his own father and mother. He was not to mourn over them. It's interesting when you think of Jesus, remember his brothers and sisters and his mothers were out the door and they said, hey, your folks and your brother and sister out there. He goes, I'll tell you who my family is. It's those who do the will of God. And see, that's what the priest, high priest was to be about. And so here, this high priest was prohibited from dealing with dead bodies, even his own family members. And notice that the nation is called to this holy standard, and the priesthood is called to a greater holy standard, and then this high priest is even called to a greater holy standard. Notice in no way they were to un uncover their heads or tear their clothes. This is interesting. In some dramatic fashion, right? And yet when you get to the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can read this on your own in Matthew 26, guess what the high priest does when Jesus claims himself to be equal with the Father? tears his clothes. Those men were so out of line biblically in every way imaginable. And yet crucified Christ and then went and celebrated the Passover. Hypocrisy will just, it'll cause you to turn into iron. And nothing will penetrate you. And that's what happened to them. But Jesus... <laughs> Jesus exhibits the perfect picture here, doesn't he? When we start to think about the high priest. Christ never uncovered his head and tore his clothes because of personal sorrow. Nor did he touch anything dead except to give life back to it. I thought about Jesus on the cross in that moment that his mom doubtlessly was, his earthly mother was mourning just moments before she loses her son, the greatest high priest of all. And in that moment, Christ exhibits this excessive tenderness. And think about what he's going through, but in that moment, he's able to care for his mother, put her in the care of one of the most loving of the disciples, and then he returned to his suffering, never acting godless in any way. In a sense, Jesus, the great high priest, never leaves the sanctuary. The Bible says here that they were not to leave the sanctuary. 
He certainly never profaned his father. He was always right there. And he offered himself up as the anointed one. He never sought to save his own life. But in the entire ways we study him, he is the perfect substitute and surety of those whom he purchased and put their faith in him. In a sense, he stayed on the altar, didn't he? He never left the sanctuary. And he bought us with his own blood. And he, and he took that blood and he brought it into the Holy of Holies because he never left that relationship with the Father. I know sometimes we see that passage where he, he cries out, and quoting the great psalmist, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we, we, we think as though he's somewhere separated from him, and yet in his holiness it's impossible for God to separate from himself. But yet at that moment there was great weight of the sin of all those who would believe in him or put upon him. But in that same moment, Hebrews says that when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. All of this that we study in here is the lesser, right? It's a lesser sacrifice. It's the lesser priest. It's the lesser high priest. It's, it's lesser in every way, but, but Jesus is the greater one, right? And he enters through the greater tabernacle, the perfect tabernacle, not made with hands in Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. That is to say, not of this creation. But, but they comes with this own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he enters into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. He never leaves the sanctuary. Certainly, I think the writer of Hebrews picked up on this first title given in the Old Testament of high priest, and he attributes it to the high priest, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice in verses 15, 13 and 15 through 15 here, we see the common priests were commanded um, that they were not to take a divorced woman or a harlot or defiled woman. But notice in these verses, the high priest had even a higher standard, right? He could not, he could not marry a widow. And his wife had to be a virgin of his own people. That's, that's another higher standard. In fact, he was to raise his children before the Lord, not profane them by, by any dedication or any service to the pagan gods that were around them. He was to protect his family. He was to be an example of that. But it's still Christ becomes this great picture for us as, as the church, right? First Corinthians, no, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 says this, For I am jealous for you, Paul speaking to the Corinth church, with a godly jealousy. Now listen to this. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as pure virgin. Isn't that interesting? The high priest in the Old Testament was to marry a virgin. Paul takes that and says, here's what I am. I have this jealousy for you. I'm not going to let you live in this sinful stuff you've been doing because I want to present you as this pure virgin bride to to the bridegroom that's my goal astounding isn't it see christ is married to the church in perfect holiness he's our bridegroom and we we the church come to him wearing his own righteous robes <laughs> that's astounding now he marries us he dresses us so we can be one with him and the church was not always this way, right? He didn't find us this way, um, pure. He found us defiled, but now he's purified us. And he's made us undefiled. And we are the choice of Christ himself. And we will be the bride that is put on display at the marriage lamb. He will, he will bring his bride to him. We will rise before him. And there, the body of Christ We'll, we'll have the blessing of the Redeemer groomsman. <laughs> well, just think about those words. We are his holy, pure bride who rises up and rejoices at her Savior bridegroom. Man, does that not give you a picture <laughs> of the goal 
of God's instruction for us. Now, positionally, we're there, but there is a practical working out of learning to die to self and live for this beautiful bridegroom who loves us so much. And that a bridegroom would offer his own blood to cleanse his own bride. Staggers us, doesn't it? Third, the sanctifying food of God that pleases the Father and his people. Look at these final verses. Follow along as I read 16 through 24. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generation who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a defect shall approach a blind man, a lame man, or he who has a disfigured face or deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offering by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat of the food of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my sanctuary. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel. Well, this shows God's standard for those who come before him in the service of the priesthood. This is the law against physical defects for the priest. But it points to the obvious, right? It points to that we have to be free to be in the presence of God. We have to be free of spiritual defects. That's what this is about. In fact, that's true of everything that enters the presence of God. That's how we started this message. But here, particularly in the setting of the tabernacle, everything that entered the presence of God, whether animal as a sacrifice to the Lord or the priest, was to be without blemish. Nothing can be in the presence of God that isn't perfect. Now, I think for the greater illustration, we know that perfection in both the sacrifice and the priest was not what we would say true or pure perfection because of the fall, right? Though that animal did not have any blemishes, it wasn't perfect because it was going to die anyway someday. So, so we understand that. But, but in comparison to others, whether it be animal or priest, they were ultimately to have this perfection personified so they could stand in the presence of God. But again, as we come at this from the new covenant, we begin to realize that that's performed through Jesus Christ and his blood. 1 Peter 1, 19-21. But with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. This is here we're at. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So the ultimate picture goes beyond the animal that's unblemished, the priest that doesn't have any of these, uh, dis, these disfigurement of any way. It goes beyond that and goes to the greater high priest who is Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this, chapter 7, verse 26 and following. He says it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above heaven. No man. That's no man on this earth could match that. That's got to be God. And that's who we know Jesus to be, right? Goes on to say, who does not need daily like those high priests. There's, he's showing the difference between the, great high, the greater high priest Jesus and the high priest of the earth. Those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sin and then for sins of the people. Because he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak so all those things, those animals, and even those priests, even though they didn't have you know, a, a bent ear or something, they still were weak. <laughs> but there's one who had no weakness. And he came and he fulfilled the law, the writer says, and then appoints the son made perfect forever. 
And so this standard was set up that no one who didn't resemble perfection could come through the veil or come near the altar. It's interesting, during the Greek occupation of Israel, remember first you have Assyrians, excuse me, Assyrians, Babylons, Greek Persians, no, Mede Persians, and then the Greeks, right? Before the Romans. That's who's held these nation of Israel in captivity. But during that rule, just 40, 40 B.C., just at the end of, before the birth of Christ and so forth, there was a man named Antigonus. And, and we know there, was other, there, there were other men that sacrificed pigs on altars and did all this, but this one, I, in reading this week, I found this. I had not known this. There's a man named Antigonus that came into the temple where the Jews were offering and trying to sustain their religious law. The way he profaned them is he took the high priest, uh, Hieronicus was his name at the time, and he cut his ears off. And the reason he did this is he knew he could never go into the presence of God again. And it was a public display that I have power over you and I have power over your God because now you can't go into his presence. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? And yet Jesus, the perfect one, the one with, with absolutely no sin, he comes and they crucify him. Verses 18 through 20, God gives a list of 12 physical abnormities that represent, because they, these would 12 would represent anything that would prevent a priest from coming to the Lord. But notice this doesn't mean that this person with these physical abnormalities did not have the ability to, to enjoy the food of God. Notice that. He couldn't be in the presence of God. He couldn't be the high priest or, or even a priest that would handle the, the, the altar, the burnt altar or the showbread or anything else. But he could eat of these sacrifices, the Bible says. And notice that Yahweh was still his God. It, it tells us that God was still his. He says he may eat of the food of his God. But the picture is greater. It's, 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 it's far greater. It, God wants us to know that only what is perfect perfection can come into my presence. Because he's pointing to Jesus and he's pointing to those that will be redeemed by Jesus. Now, Many are so offended by this section. If you have to talk about Old Testament with people, this is a passage they'll often bring up. They're offended by this. God doesn't let disabled people into his presence. And this is because they don't see the greater promise of Christ, right? They're still looking at their own works, and, and they're, they're thinking that man is good enough to go in the presence of God. They don't see that, and so they're offended by a passage like this. And you have to remind them, none of us get into the presence of God in our present condition. So you don't see it. Because most people think they're good enough. They're not like the other people. And so they take offense when we talk about unblemished. When we talk about holy and blameless before God. That's why they mock Christians. And if they see us fail in any way, they can't understand forgiveness. They can't understand that positionally we're right with God. And yes, we may struggle in our progression as we grow in the image of him at times. But our position is there because Christ gave us that position. Not because we earned it. And so these verses are often very offensive to the world. I think the key phrase here in verse 21 is that he shall not come near and again, only perfection comes into the presence of God. And clearly there is no one perfect but God. So we know this is demonstrating, this is pointing towards a greater person. A greater person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's also pointing to a greater food. Notice this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's this sacrifice of animals. It's this table of showbread. But we know that the bread and the animal were not perfect because of the fall so this has to point to a more perfect food that pleases god 
here. So God had designed a priesthood that would point towards the coming Messiah who, who alone could bring perfection to sinners. And how beautiful Jesus is, isn't he? How, how perfection is personified in his person. We watch him work, right? We watch the perfection flow out of him as he touches someone and heals them. Takes a withered hand and it's new again. We watch him breathe on his disciples the spirit of God and they become empowered and become men that overcome fear and preach the gospel in quite dangerous situations. And it's without a doubt that the glorious person of Jesus Christ was not only the perfect and greatest high priest, but he's also the perfect sacrifice that's offered up for him. So he is the, he is the high priest this is speaking of and pointing towards, but he's also the perfect food. <laughs> he's the perfect sacrifice. Notice in our text, five times the text says the food of God. Isn't that interesting? It's the first time that phrase is used in the Old Testament. They're offering up the food of God. These unblemished sacrifices, this bread um, was temporary to God, right? The showbread had to be changed all the time. Um, you had to keep bringing lambs and bulls and blood of goats and bulls over and over. It was temporary. But there was still to come something greater, something more satisfying for God. And that was the death, burial, and resurrection of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the food of God. That's what this was pointing towards. You look, every time we take communion, we are not eating Jesus. That's a terrible, terrible um, misrepresentation by the Roman Catholic Church. But you and I come to communion and we recognize that this is the food of God. This reminds us that Christ was that food, in a sense. He was that final bread of heaven. It would cause us to never hunger. And it satisfied the Wrath of God, even the hunger of God's wrath, he was, he was satisfied. And this is why John the Baptist comes and says, Behold, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when he says sins, he means wrath too. Later in John 6, he says, listen to this, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. So Christ satisfies the Father with his perfect offering. He's the perfect food, right? He's the perfect sacrifice that comes in that we all partake of, right? But he's also the perfect high priest. And as we receive the food of God in the face of Christ, that's how we understand this. We find ourselves, listen, completely satisfied in Jesus. You're not hungry for something else. In fact, when you start to look at the religions of the world, you lose your appetite for any of that. In fact, it becomes something somewhat disgusting, isn't it? As you see how, how the religious world tries to justify themselves before God. Saddens us. But, oh, the taste of the grace of Christ overcomes your hunger for works, doesn't it? Since now you know you're saved, you've, you've become satisfied by the grace of God, and you no longer hunger in order to be accepted by God through your own works. Oh, the taste of grace of Christ overcomes the bitterness of our sin. When you got saved, you saw the wretchedness of who you were. And, and, and probably, let me say this, as we grew, we saw it even more, didn't we? Maybe some of us were young when we were saved. We didn't see all that we could be. But as we grow in Christ and continue to progress in his image, we see the wretchedness of what we could be. And really what we are sometimes. And yet, positionally, holy and blameless before God. And so the taste of grace has overcome the bitterness of sin. The taste of grace of Christ has quenched our spiritual thirst and satisfied our spiritual hunger. 
hasn't it? One, one passage, we'll quit with this. John chapter 6. You know I have to go here. Many of you were thinking of this passage, weren't you? John 6, 33. If you want to just feed your soul tomorrow morning, read through John 6. I promise you'll come away and see the glory and beauty of Christ. Look at just three verses here. Verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Who can do that but God? Jesus says, I am the bread of life, right? Verse 35, then he said, they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. I'm the food of God. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Why would we tell anybody to live anyway except for Jesus? Ask God to strengthen your marriages because of Jesus. Ask God to help you raise children because of Jesus. Ask God to help us to be model citizens in this corrupt and fallen world because of Jesus. Those who minister as as elders and deacons and leaders within the church, we minister because of Jesus. Not just to keep ourselves in our positions. We'll We'll never survive with that type of attitude. We do this because of Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. We're his under shepherds. And we follow behind him. And the sheep follow us as we follow him. And that's how God has designed it. And so we look at Leviticus 21 and we go, oh, there's a greater priest. There's a greater sacrifice. It's Jesus. Father, thanks for this lesson in Leviticus 21. What a joy to study the law and see, as Paul said, that the law was good. And particularly here, we know its fulfillment is found in the greater high priest, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the inspiration that you gave to the writer of Hebrews who saw the greater Christ, the greater prophet, the greater king, the greater priest, the greater sacrifice. And so, Lord, we can study Leviticus and see our, our Lord Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, in these passages. Lord, may you strengthen us, whether we're a leader in the church, we're a wife, a husband, a son, a daughter, certainly a church member, God. May Jesus be our greatest example. May his joy and all that he's accomplished for us continue to be our motivation, Lord. Lord, we ask that you do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to see you all. Buy your tickets. They're up there. You're dismissed.